Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are going to finish the book of Proverbs. I expect that the next book we are going to look at is going to be the book of Isaiah. When we went historically through the Old Testament, plugging in the various different prophets, we read several of the prophetic books as part of that study, but we didn't do the book of Isaiah, which in so many ways is the gospel in the Old Testament. And we didn't do the book of Jeremiah, even though we did big portions and pieces of it. And so since it is my goal, as long as God gives me breath, to try to cover every book in the Bible, so I think the book of Isaiah is what we will start next. Tonight we are in Proverbs chapter 31. Of course, people know Proverbs 31 because they use the phrase, a Proverbs 31 type of woman, and we will eventually get to that. But the beginning of chapter 31 is advice that was given to a fellow named Lemuel. In many translations, you will see him referred to as King Lemuel, and yet if you go back and you read the histories of the kings of Judah and Israel. He clearly has a Hebrew name. That L at the end of the name is a name for God, a proper name for God. He belongs to God. That seems to be what the word Lemuel means, belonging to God. And yet, as you look at the histories of the kings of Judah and Israel, you don't find a king Lemuel. That has caused a certain amount of consternation for people. But the word that is translated king there can equally mean somebody of royal descent. This could be the brother of a king who would then share a mother with an actual king. It could be a cousin. It could be a family member, anybody who was part of the nobility of Israel. And so that word translated king, don't let that throw you. Just know that he was apparently somebody within the royal lineage. And that would be why the words that his mother taught him would be important words. And even though we don't know exactly who he is, even though we don't know the history behind Lemuel, when the Proverbs were gathered among the Israelites when King Hezekiah and his scribes were gathering the sayings of Solomon. Obviously, the Hebrews knew who this Lemuel was because they included his words along with the words of Solomon and the words of wisdom that were necessary to pass down to Israel. So the fact that we don't know 3,000 years later the fact that we don't know who Lemuel is doesn't mean that he didn't have a tremendous amount of influence and credibility in the history of Israel among people who actually did know him and felt that the words that he was taught 
were important to pass on. The words of Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. Verse 2, she says, What, my son? In other words, answer me, my son. And what, O son of my womb? And what, O son of my vows? She could be referring to her marriage vows there, or she may have made a vow to the Lord similar to what Hannah did. We don't really know which vows she's referring to here, but she's identifying Lemuel as being her offspring. And so he really should pay attention to her. Not only did she give him birth, but she is the one who raised him on the promises and the vows that she made. The very first thing that she tells him is, do not give your strength to women. Apparently, this is going to be in contrast to the Proverbs 31 type of good woman. She's talking about women generally to many women. Now, remember that the history of Judah is that Solomon, the man responsible for the vast majority of the Proverbs that we're reading, lost the kingdom. And we're told it's because he loved many strange women, many foreign women. He gave his strength up to women. He gave up his authority to women. And so this would be good advice to any king, any nobleman, any royal person who has any amount of power and authority. A good mother would tell them, don't waste your wealth, don't waste your strength, don't waste your efforts. On women, or your ways to that which destroys kings. So she is saying that there is a type of woman, there is a kind of excess that men of power can exercise with women that not only zaps their strength and their authority, but then it destroys kings, it ruins kings. And of course, as I said, the history of Israel is exactly that. The 12 tribes were separated because of Solomon chasing after foreign gods. And his chasing after foreign gods was a direct result of him loving many foreign women. So this advice, while still current for us, it's a good idea not to waste your money, your strength, your time on women of ill repute. It was especially important for the kings for the royalty that came down through Judah, important for them to look back at Solomon and recognize that despite his wealth and despite his riches, his downfall was women. So good advice. Do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. Now that or your ways can mean more than just women, because in a minute she's going to add the second element of how kings destroy themselves, and that is through too much drink, too much alcohol. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire strong drink. Some translations will translate that as a version of beer, What it means is alcohols that come from grains as opposed to coming from grapes. But it's not proper for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire grain alcohol, anything that will change their ability 
to remain in charge of their faculties. Verse 5 says, they shouldn't drink lest they drink and then they forget what is decreed. In other words, they forget what the laws are. They forget what the purpose of their job is. They're given over to drunkenness and they pervert the rights of the afflicted. And I think that that is one of the reasons that this little set of oracles from Lemuel's mother are included in the book of Proverbs because one of the constant themes that we have seen through the book of Proverbs is this idea that the powerful, the wealthy, should not take advantage of the poor and the underprivileged. Rather, they should always treat them fairly. They should give them a hand up. They should be generous to them. And so the notion here is that a king should not forget that he's a king. He should not forget what his position is as a judge and that he is called to justice and fairness. And if he gives himself over to wine and strong drink, he's going to forget. He'll forget what is decreed. He'll forget what his purpose is. He'll forget what the laws are. And then he'll pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Then in verse 6, she's going to say when it is appropriate to give wine or strong drink to someone. She says, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. So she's just admitted that wine and strong drink make you forget. And then she says, and some people have lives where it's really better to forget. If they're under the kind of difficulty in their life, the kind of bitterness in their life where they just want to go to sleep and forget it all, well, then that's the appropriate time to drink too much wine. She also says, give strong drink to those who are perishing. That became such a common standard within Israel that you even see Jesus on the cross when they attempt to give him vinegar, which is basically a a strong fermented wine that has begun to sour And they try to give him that sour wine on a sponge because he's on the cross and it's going to work as an anesthetic. And that's why he refused it. He took on the wrath of God without any anesthetic. But strong drink is for those who are perishing to help them deal with the pain, to help them deal with what they're going through as their life is coming to an end, as they perish then use it as an anesthetic for them. And wine is for him whose life is bitter. Then let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. I understand the popularity of wine, but it's not for kings. It's not for those who are ruling. It's not for those who are sitting in judgment. It's for those who would rather forget because wine will make you forget and you're a king. You're not supposed to forget. But somebody whose life is bitter, then give them strong drink. Give them drink so that they can forget their poverty and then they can remember their trouble no more. But you as a king, verse 8, you... Open your mouth for the dumb. In other words, you're supposed to speak for the ones who can't speak for themselves. You're supposed to defend the defenseless. Open your mouth for the dumb, 
for the rights of all the unfortunate. Proper judgment within Israel. How many times have we seen this in the book of Proverbs? Proper judgment within Israel was calling a king, calling a judge not to accept bribes, not to do special favor for those who could do good things for them, but they were to treat the lower classes, the unfortunate. They were to treat them justly. They were to treat them properly and generously and not judge them harshly based on the fact that they, in their poverty, couldn't do anything for you, the judge. So he says, open your mouth for the dumb, for the rights of the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. So if you're a judge, a king, royalty within Israel, if you're acting as a judge between people, you're not supposed to judge according to one's wealth or one's poverty. Far too often those who were afflicted and impoverished got harsher sentences. Those who had money, who could pay bribes, those people were not judged, adjudicated properly. And so the mother of Lemuel says, look, this is what you're supposed to be as a king. This is what your strength is supposed to be. So don't give away that strength. Don't give away that propriety that you're supposed to have. And don't waste it on wild living. Don't waste it on women just because you have the power so that you can accumulate women to yourself. And don't give yourself over to drink. Don't give yourself over to anything that would change your ability to remember who you are and what job you're supposed to be doing. Don't forget what is decreed. Don't pervert the rights of the affliction. Open your mouth for the dumb, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. And that appears to be the end of the oracle of the mother of King Lemuel. And then the balance of this chapter is an interesting poem. Now, when we think poetry, we think rhyming words and iambic pentameter. We think of poetry as having an English structure. But Jewish poetry took many different forms, and one of the more common forms that even David in the book of Psalms entered into is a type of poetry where you take the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We even get our name, alphabet, that word, from the Aleph and the Bet of the Hebrew alphabet. There's no other word to use. And so you take the individual letters of the Hebrew alphabet and you use them like an acrostic so that each statement, each verse, each line starts with the next letter in the alphabet. That is the form of poetry that you see between verse 10 and verse 31 of chapter 31. And so remember that this is not just singing the praises of a virtuous woman. It's also designed in a form of poetry where anybody reading it in the Hebrew would have recognized that form of poetry. So it's actually purposeful and beautiful language to describe a purposeful woman. Mm. 
So it's really interesting to look at. The whole thing wraps up with this conclusion. I think we'll start with the conclusion so that we understand everything else that gets said between verses 10 and verse 31. The conclusion is in verse 30, charm is deceitful. You look for a charming woman. You want a woman whose charms are just undeniable. But the truth of the matter is sometimes women with not such good intentions can also be charming. Mm -hmm. They can flatter you. And men are suckers for flattery. We just want to be flattered all over the place. So charm can be deceitful. And beauty ultimately is vain. And what is Solomon's primary concept? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And even beauty itself comes under that heading of vanity because in the end, beauty fades. And so if you're going to live your whole life with a woman, you're going to have to love her for more qualities than just the way she looks. Because as time goes by, the looks are going to change. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So that's a really nice bookend to the entirety of the Proverbs, which began with the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And between verses 10 and verses 31, we are going to have a description of a wise woman, an industrious woman. But her chief characteristic that separates her from the women that were described by Lemuel's mother, the kind of women who can zap your strength, the difference between them is that this kind of woman, first and foremost, is a woman who fears the Lord. And if you can find her, she's to be praised. Now I will tell you, again, I'm still introducing this Proverbs 31 woman. I will tell you that these verses sort of act like an addendum at the very end of the book of Proverbs because the truth is nobody knows who actually wrote this particular poem. Apparently, the Jews who did collect the Proverbs into a, a scroll together thought that these were valuable enough words and they seemed to know the pedigree of these words. Some people will tell you that these are words of Solomon. Some people will tell you that this is some of the oracle of Lemuel. Some people will say that this was written during the time of Hezekiah by some anonymous author. The truth of the matter is nobody knows. Nobody knows where these words come from. And yet they were included with the wisdom of Solomon because they do convey absolute truth. An excellent wife, who can find? There you go, right away, that's true. That's the very beginning of it, and it is absolutely true. That word excellent means a woman of noble character, an upstanding woman. She's going to be described as an industrious woman, as a faithful woman, as a faithful woman who serves her husband her whole life. How do you find that? Of course, the answer is only if God provides you that yes. can you find it. But the vast majority of women in the days when this was written and today aren't noble-minded, industrious women. Why? 
Well, I won't go into this at any great length, but the reason is because women have Eve coursing through them. And Eve had to be told her husband was going to be the head over her. And she's been rebelling against that ever since. And so women have this natural, just like all human beings, but women have this natural desire for complete independence. And they don't want the idea, they don't like the idea of a man being head over them. It takes God himself to provide an excellent wife, a wife of noble character. And if you can find that, I mean, who can find her? It's a great question. Who can find a woman like that? If you can, she's worth more, far more than jewels. Jewels were a show of wealth. If you had jewels, if you had gold, you, you demonstrated you were a wealthy, powerful person. You had influence in the society. But if you had a wife, a good wife, a noble wife, as you're going to see as we read through this, she is a more direct reflection of you than your wealth could possibly be. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of benefit, no lack of gain. There's the beginning of it. For a noble woman, a woman of noble character, a trustworthy woman, the heart of her husband is going to trust her because he knows that she's not out to do him any harm. She's not out to spend them into the poorhouse. She's not going to get his affection and then share her affections with everyone else. And so she, being a noble-minded, noble-charactered woman, is someone who the heart of her husband can trust implicitly. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of. The word gain is an interesting word. It, it means benefit from her as he loves her and she loves him that relationship is going to continue to grow and to blossom and become stronger through the years, and that is a really significant gain. She does him good and no evil. In other words, she's not a liability. She's not somebody who you marry, and then the rest of your days, you feel bad that this is who you married. She's not somebody who, when you say, till death do you part, you're setting a goal. Never mind. <laughs> she does him good and not evil. All the days of her life. In other words, she remains like that. Why does she remain like that? Why does she remain the good wife? Because that's her character. That's her nature. She's of a noble character. Notice that keeps getting back to what she's made up of. And where does that noble character come from? Well, she's a woman who fears the Lord first and foremost. She's a woman who wants to serve the Lord. And because of her service to God, she then wants to act appropriately in her place as wife. And the heart of her husband will trust her. He will have no lack of gain and increase and benefit through her. And she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. 
Now here's where the industrious part comes in, starting at verse 13. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She works, she's industrious, she's not lazy, she's not resting on her laurels and expecting everybody else to provide for her. Rather, she goes and looks for wool and flax. As we continue reading through here, you're going to see that that's because she wants to make things, make clothing, make blankets, make things for her family. So she looks for wool. She looks for flax. She works with her hands, but she does it happily. She does it with delight. She's not grumbling while she's working. Instead, she's happy in the work that she's been given to do. Look down at verse 19, because it kind of connects here to verse 13. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. The distaff, I had to look up. The distaff is a pole that the threads of the flax or of the wool are wrapped around. And she's busy pulling that wool, wrapping that wool, keeping that flax, weaving it together. So she's busy working at making things, and that's why she's looking for wool and flax. She works with her hands in delight. And then she's like the merchant ships. What it means is that she goes shopping. She goes out into the marketplace, and she gets food which is what the second half of the verse says, she brings her food from afar. So the same way that the ships used to be laden with the good of other countries, the foods of other countries, the, the delicacies of other countries, and then those ships would make their way into the Mediterranean and ultimately to Israel. She's like that. The same way that the merchant ships actively provide for us She's actively providing for her family. She goes out into the markets and she gets her foods and then she brings them from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She rises while it's still night. In other words, she's an early riser. She doesn't spend her day in bed being lazy, waiting for other people to serve her, she gets up, she's industrious, and she makes food for her household. So not only does she go out and find the foods and bring them back to the house for the family, but then she gets up and she prepares the foods. The phrase, and portions to her maidens, means one of two things. It can either mean that when she's making the food for her family, she doesn't forget to prepare some of it for the maidens who are waiting on her, or it can mean that she is also someone who's able to delegate jobs and authority, and that when she's making the food for a whole household, which sometimes royal households could be very large, while she was making the food for the household, she wasn't the only one doing it, but she was also handing out assignments to the various different maidens who would be preparing food with her. In other words, she's in charge of her house. She's in charge of her kitchen. She knows what she's doing. She considers a field and buys it from her earnings. From her earnings, 
she plants a vineyard. Now, you can read some commentaries that will say, wait a minute, that's a problematic phrase because women weren't typically allowed to go out and purchase fields. It was the men who would do the, the land buying, the acquiring of good things like vineyards. But look at verse 24 for a minute. This woman, this particular noble character, industrious woman, verse 24 tells us she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. So this is a woman who is also bringing in some money to the household. She's industrious, and when she's busy weaving things together, when she's busy making clothing for her family, she makes extra and then goes out and sells it because she's so good at what she does and even supplies belts for tradesmen. That might be leather, that might be linen belts, but she's out there actively selling stuff. So the impression is that she's so industrious that she actually puts some money aside, her own money, and with that, rather than spend it all on herself and say, oh good, now I've got some extra money, I think I'll get me some stuff, she goes out and acquires a field and buys it. And from her earnings, she plants a vineyard. What's that for? For the good of the whole family, for the good of the whole household. So it's really a demonstration of how selfless she is, that she is always thinking of taking care of her family, taking care of others. She is self-sacrificial. She puts in the hard work, and then she sells the things that she makes, but then she uses the money for the benefit of everyone. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Verse 17 says, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. That seems to just be another indication of the fact that she stays active. She keeps doing these chores. She's working in the kitchen. She's making these clothes. She's out selling things. And so, as a result, she is exercising herself and she becomes stronger than she would be if she just sat around like a lump waiting for people to bring her bonbons. <laughs> oh, good, you're still with me. Okay. For a moment, I thought I was alone up here. She girds herself with strength and she makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain, a moment ago, remember, we read that she sells things. She senses that her gain is good. And her lamp does not go out at night. When does this woman sleep? Because we have already read that she's up early before the sun preparing for her family. But now she's also burning the midnight oil. Now her lamp does not go out at night. So the writer of this poem is saying that she's an industrious woman. That's what this all adds up to. She's not a lazy, self-centered person, but she works for the benefit of other people, and no hour is too late or too early for her because she wants to work for the benefit of other people. This is what a woman of truly noble character is like. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff 
and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. So now, not only is she caring for her family and her household, but on those opportunities when she can help out somebody in need, she's also a generous person. That's her character. That's her nature. That's her makeup. After all, she's somebody who fears the Lord and the wisdom that has been demonstrated through the book of Proverbs so far, the wisdom that comes from the Lord, includes being generous to those who are less fortunate, being kind to the downtrodden, and giving to those who have less. So she's like that. She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household. So now we're talking about the change of seasons. When it gets cold, she's not worried about her household. She's not afraid for her household. Remember that uh, homes in the Middle East a few thousand years ago did not have central heating. They might light a fire in some portion of the house, but sometimes it can get so bitter cold that a fire in one part of the house is not enough to warm the whole house but she's not afraid of that kind of cold or snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. In other words, she has prepared them clothing for the winter, but then she makes coverings for herself, and her clothing is fine linen and purple. What you need to know about the Middle East a few thousand years ago was that only nobility was allowed to wear purple. It was the color of nobility. You had to have some real influence, some real significance in the society. If you were going to be wearing purple, it was the color for kings. And her clothing is fine linen and purple. That indicates that the woman that's being described here is a woman of some means, a woman of some bearing. In fact, in a moment, we're going to find out that her husband stands in the gate and only the leaders, the high and mighty, the nobility, of Israel ever met at the gate. So she seems to be a woman of bearing. That's why she would have a large household. That's why she would have maidens that wait on her who she delegates to. But she's not afraid of the cold and she's not afraid of the snow for her household because she prepares them. She makes them appropriate clothing and then she makes coverings for herself and for her family. She makes blankets so that at night they're going to stay warm. So she's been very busy weaving. She's been very busy at the loom, been very busy at the spinning wheel, at the spindle. She's been very busy, very industrious, making sure that her family has everything they need. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. He's not just an interloper at the gates, but he's somebody who is known in the gates. That means that we're talking about somebody who is at the top echelons of society. When he sits among the elders of the land, the elders, the judges, the ones in charge of the society of Jerusalem would sit in the gates of Jerusalem, and apparently when he came to the gates, they all knew him. He is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments. 
and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. The very fact that she's described a couple of times here as wearing linen means that she had to be fairly well to do. To take a good flax and to make a quality soft linen out of it was not something the common folk could do. They were more likely to be wearing rough clothing, skins, sackcloths. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing. Really interesting phrase, considering that we've just gone through all the trouble of describing what she wears. She wears purple, she wears linens, she's well appointed, and yet it's not her clothing that is her chief quality. It's not the beautiful clothing she's wearing that really makes her an outstanding, noble, charactered kind of woman. It's what's inside her. Strength and dignity are what really clothes her. She is clothed in, she is demonstrating, she is wrapped in strength and dignity, and she smiles at the future. What a nice phrase that is. I mean, she's not afraid. She's not afraid of what's coming. She's done everything she can do. She's taken care of her family. She's fed her family. She's clothed her family. She's done everything she can do. She trusts the Lord. And whatever happens, whatever's coming is in the Lord's hands. And as a consequence, when she looks toward the future, she smiles. She's not in fear of the future. She's not terrified by the future. She's not wringing her hands and going, oh my, what about next week? Instead, she knows confidently that she's done everything she can and that God is going to protect her. So strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom. In other words, she's not one of the foolish women. She's not one of the foolish talkers. So often in the book of Proverbs here, we have seen the admonition to just shut up. Just stop talking so much. Just stop doing all this damage with your mouth. It's come up so many times in the book of Proverbs. And if you're going to speak to somebody, think about what you're saying. Consider what you're saying. And then spend time gathering wisdom so that there is benefit to what you are saying. So that you are speaking wisdom. Well, for this kind of excellent wife, this noble character wife, when she opens her mouth, wisdom. She's able to teach She's able to instruct. She's able to be a teacher, it says. And the teaching of her kindness is on her tongue. So she can teach the women in the household. She can teach the children. And she can teach them properly. She can teach them how to do the things that she knows how to do. And she only knows how to do those things because she has exercised herself in the doing of them until she got really good at them. And then she can pass along that skill, that wisdom, and that demonstration of how to be a really excellent wife. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That's not insignificant. When she teaches, those that she teaches, other women, her maidens, the children, Notice that part and parcel of what she is teaching them 
is how to be good to other people, how to be kind, how to be appropriate to other people so that they are attracted to you not because of your outward glamour or your outward beauty or your outward appearance of either nobility or wealth or anything else, that they're going to be attracted to you because of your character, because of your personality, because you're a kind person. She looks well to the ways of her household, and she does not eat the bread of idleness. After everything else we have read about her, up early, up late, busy making clothes, making blankets, making so much stuff she's got extra to sell. Then she's taking the proceeds from her sale and she's buying fields and she's growing vineyards and she's, well, this is a really active, busy kind of woman. She looks well on the ways of her household and obviously she's not idle. But that phrase, she does not eat the bread of idleness, describes the kind of woman who marries a wealthy man and then spends the rest of her life being idle and expecting other people to provide food and sweets and goods for her while she just sits back and consumes. So there's an actual contrast here. She looks after her household as opposed to making the household look after her. She is industrious. She is not idle. So what are the consequences of all that? What are the consequences of a woman like that? Now, this is a place where I can really enter into this because I was raised by this kind of woman. I can look back at my mother and say, yeah, she worked. She worked hard every day. She made my dad proud. Our house was clean, and the children always had clothes. My mother sewed. My mother didn't go out and buy new clothes for us. She'd make us clothes. Mom was always patching our socks and making sure that we had whatever we needed. Mom always made sure that there was food on the table. Mom always made sure. And mom would sometimes work. And then she would spend that money on school clothes for us kids. And she'd be up before we were making lunches for us to take to school. And in fact, we'd come back from school most days, and she'd been baking all day. And there was cookies, and there was brownies, and there was cakes, and there was all the kids in the neighborhood would come to the McClarty house, and the first thing they would say when they would come to the porch, this is absolutely true, not a word of a lie to it, they would come to me and they would say, hey, has your mom been baking? <laughs> I mean, she was popular with the neighborhood kids because she was just generous, and she would bake. Verse 28 says, her children will rise up and call her blessed. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm a living example of the fact that that's true. I rise up to this very day, and though my mom has passed, I still talk about her in glowing terms. I still am happy to say that my mom is a wonderful woman, a really good, industrious woman, a really kind, good-hearted woman. And my dad loved her to the day he died because she was that kind of woman. So as a result, her children 
will rise up and bless her. That word means speak well of. That's what it is to bless somebody, is to speak well of them, to eulogize them. So her children rise up and bless her. And her husband also. He's also going to speak well of her. He can't wait to tell his friends about her. He can't wait to sing her praises. He can't wait to say, I'm married well. Her husband also, and he praises her. Now, should I get into psychology here? I guess I can for just one brief moment. I remember reading a book many years ago that was talking about husbands and wives and what husbands need most and what wives need most. And they broke it down to women just innately. It's built into the married women women who desire to be part of a couple, a man and a woman, those women want the approval of their husband. They want their husband to be proud of them. They want their husband to be satisfied with them. And that's where they find their sense of well-being. Men get their sense of well-being by knowing their wife is proud of them. When their wife praises them, that's where a husband gets his sense of well-being. And every man in the room is nodding right now. Because we know we get our sense of well-being from knowing that we, we made our woman happy. We made our woman proud. We are living up to manhood, testosterone. We are living up to being a man, and my woman knows it. And a woman gets her sense of well-being from knowing that her husband is pleased with her. Look what this says here. The psychology that was in this book from a few years ago is the same psychology that you find here. Her husband also, and he praises her. So she does all the industrious work, and what does she get in return? She gets the approval of her husband, and that is satisfying. That fills that need, that void within her to know that her husband loves, provides, and respects her. That should have been provides for, not just provides her. Many daughters, here's her praise. Here's the praise that the husband doles out. Many daughters have done nobly. Yeah, there's lots of women out there who have done a pretty good job, but my wife is better than all of them. The words are, but you excel them all. When you can look your wife in the eye and say, yeah, there, there's probably other good women on the planet, but I don't know any other women. You, you excel them all. You're the important one. You're the only one I can see. I love you and you only. No matter how many other women in the world are doing good things right now, I remain solely impressed, singularly impressed with you. What woman doesn't want to hear that? Luann? Sound good, didn't it? Sounds pretty good. Sound good, Carol? Sound good, April? Yeah. Okay, guys in the room, take that as a hint. <laughs>
Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm, this is where we began, is deceitful. Beauty is vanity. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. That's the end of it all. That's the, the essential character of it all. That's what makes her who she is and why she is the way she is. That is why she is devoted to her children. That is why she runs her household well. That is why she is working to make her husband proud so that when he's with the elders in the gates, he's willing to say, that's my wife and I couldn't be prouder of her. That's why she does what she does. It all begins with her understanding of who God is, what God is like. That's why she has wisdom that she can pass on to other people because she fears the Lord. That is the reason that she shall be praised. Boy, if you've got a good God-fearing woman in your life, that's a blessing beyond all the jewels and all the money because money comes and goes. Money is passing. Money is fleeting. One noble-charactered woman. I can't think of anything in this lifetime more valuable than that. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates Again, a really interesting last phrase. Usually the gate was where all the men would gather. But when the husband of this kind of woman is sitting in the gates with the elders of the city, he praises her in the gates, which means he's praising her to the other men. Even when she's not around, he's bragging about his wife. My wife, you should see. So give her the product of her hands. Give her the praise she deserves. Give her the result of her hard work. If you have a God-fearing, hard-working, devoted, faithful woman all the days of her life who is devoted to her husband, who you can trust in your heart, then give her what she desires and give her the praise that she desires. Give her the praise that she has earned and let her know what a blessing she is in your life. Got it? Got it. Questions? Have I put enough pressure on the men in the room now? <laughs> but boy, that's also just really, really good advice. I mean, I know it's, it's a 3,000-year-old writing. But man, it's just really good advice. When I said to the women in the room, sounds good, huh? They all went, yep. Not a one of them went, no, I can do without that. It's good advice. All right. Say goodbye then to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of God.